Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to this third Grattan webinar on the COVID-19 crisis. My name's Paul Austin. I'm the editor of the Grattan Institute, and I'm joined on our working from home panel this afternoon by four policy experts or Grattan gurus, as I like to call them. Firstly, our CEO, John Daly, our health program director, Stephen Duckett, our transport and cities program director, Marion Terrell, and finally, Brendan Coates, who runs the Household Finances Program here at Grattan. Our aim over the next hour is to explore at least some of the health, economic, budgetary, political, educational, and social ramifications of this crisis via questions to our experts from me, but also from you, our audience members. Those of you who participated in our first two Grattan webinars will know that it's about here that I make two commitments and one caution. The first commitment is that we will try to deal with as many of your questions as possible over the next hour. The caution is to say that of course it won't be possible for us to deal with all your questions, so please be patient in that regard. And the other commitment, however, is this. Grattan Institute will continue this conversation well beyond this webinar. You can be assured that over the coming days, weeks and months, we're committed to contributing to informed debate on this evolving crisis. So let's get to it. Stephen, I wanted to start with you. Stephen Duckett is our Health Program Director and he's a former head of the Federal Department of Health. Stephen, the infection numbers have been looking great, really. So here's my question for you. Are we beating the virus here in Australia? Uh, good question. Uh, good question, uh, Paul. Um, so yes, I think the answer is the trends are really, really good. Uh, if you look at uh, this chart, which I'll just uh, uh, share, if I can. Oops, I... Um, Sorry, the transition isn't as good as I thought it was going to be. Uh, if we look at this chart, what we can see here, whoops, sorry. What we can see here is that the, uh, the, the number of new cases is really, really dropping away. And so we've moved through the pandemic from this early stages when we didn't really know what we we're doing, we hadn't really got our policies right, we hadn't uh, put any controls in place to a, a situation of the national action where all the lockdown started and so on. And this week, we, we've seen the start of the easing of the, the restrictions. And so we're calling this period the transition to the new normal, where the, uh, in some states, they're talking about schools going back. In other states, uh, more people can go to meetings and so on. So it, it's, uh, the, 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 the trend is good. However, we are still not at zero, and so there's still a risk of transmissions. There is still a risk that we might have a second wave. Stephen, there's still a risk, and in that regard, you've downloaded the app, that is the federal government's COVID Safe app. Why have you done that, and why have you felt confident to do that? So it's a, it's a balancing question for everybody. The, the government does not have a good track record on managing personal information. It leaks, it leaks information to any of its opponents whenever it seems to like. However, that's a fact and we know that. Against that is the benefits of the, of the app. That is that we, uh, if, if, an, if a, uh, a second wave occurs, if an infection occurs, the, the app will speed up the contact tracing and the contact tracing is what we have to absolutely have to be on top of to stop that uh, infection getting out through its chain of transmission uh, to more and more people. So I have to make this judgment about the risk to my personal information versus the benefit to the public. And I came down that I think it's, from the judgment I made, I think I want to be, that the, I weigh the benefit to the public more than the risk to my personal information. So that's why I downloaded it. Uh, fascinating. Let me just run quickly around the panel before I return to you, Stephen. John Daly, Stephen has downloaded the app. Have you? I have. Uh, and, and for similar reasons. It's a trade-off. Uh, and I think that what one has to bear in mind is that the value here of 
being able to bring back a huge amount of economic and social activity, which if enough people download the app is very substantial. Um, that, that's a big plus. I think the other thing that helps is that government um, is acutely aware of the costs of um, misusing this information. If there is any suspicion that it has been misused, a very large number of people will immediately delete the app from their phones. And I think that effectively creates incentives for government not to misuse it, perhaps much stronger than incentives than it's had with other kinds of um, uh, uh, technology that it has misused over the last couple of years. Marion, the app, yes or no? So um, I agree that the, there's a genuine trade-off to be made here. And uh, I haven't been able to satisfy myself of the effectiveness of the app of what it sets out to do. Two yes, one no. What about you, Brendan? Yes, I have, Paul. Thanks, Brendan. Stephen, the app has been one of the big issues this week, but another has been schools. Can I ask you, do you think our schools should now be reopened? Uh, if, if I say it tomorrow, no, is the short answer. Um, the evidence, we've been looking very, very carefully at the evidence about transmission of the virus in young people and kids. And there you've got, is it possible for young kids to be uh, infected? Answer, yes. Uh, is it possible for young kids to, uh, or how likely is it for young kids to transmit? Evidence is, is unclear. So it's one of these, again, it's one of these balancing issues. And uh, I think the public is de-emphasising the risk to children. That is, there's been no deaths of anybody under about 55, I think, in Australia, whereas there have been deaths of young people uh, in uh, the United Kingdom and in Europe and in the United States. And so we're not seeing the tragic downside. And so the, 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 I think there's an issue of uncertainty, which is why we are seeing differences of opinion between, in, between the states. And so in Victoria, uh, the advice from the chief health officer is do not open schools just yet. Uh, in New South Wales, they said, let's open them one day a week for, for each cohort. And in, uh, I think in South Australia, the kids have gone back. But in South Australia, of course, they've got uh, no new cases. So it's a slightly different situation. So I think there is a, uh, there's genuine uncertainty in the science and different people weigh the outcomes differently. Different people assess the evidence differently. And the evidence is changing very, very rapidly. A new article in The Lancet in the last two days, for example. And so, you know, well-intentioned people can come to, to different decisions. I think it is misleading to say there is no risk and there's no possibility of risk uh, in, in reopening schools. But I think it's, at my view, I wouldn't open them tomorrow. Would I open them in a, in, uh, in a week or so's time? I want to sit tight for a little bit yet. And an even bigger question for you, Stephen, which is based in part on a question we've had from uh, Damien. Uh, it's on the future of our health system. How should the post-pandemic health system be different so what's come before? Well, I think uh, Damien's question is a good one. Um, I'll just bring up this, this chart here. This is a chart of what's happened with uh, telehealth uh, over the last uh, month or so. And so what we saw is there's been a series of increasing uh, drip feeding of announcements about expanding access to telehealth. It's supposed to be, telehealth is supposed to be video conferencing and only telephone where you can't do video conferencing. But what you see here is that these are Monday to Friday um, uh, attendances. Um, this is data from five of the primary health networks in, uh, in Victoria. And what you see here is the number of face-to-face -face contacts in each week on average has dropped a bit. Stephen, just to interrupt, sorry to interrupt. I can't see your chart at the moment. I'm not sure if our audience can. Um, keep speaking. All right, I'll start again. Um, okay, share screen. Otherwise, just keep talking to it. Um, so I should be sharing my screen. Can you see anything on my screen? Um, anyway, the, the, the chart that I'm trying to show, it looks at the dramatic increase in tele, telehealth use. So the, there's been a slow decline in the number of um, 
face-to-face uh, -face consultations and an increase in the number of um, uh, tele telephone and tel uh, video conference uh, consultations. And so that, that has been um, one of the massive changes. There have been other changes, of course, too. And these have included um, uh, the, the massive increase in the use of um, outreach. So people are now uh, calling out from a practice rather than being reactive. There's been uh, much more use of uh, secondary consultations where rather than sending a patient to a specialist, the specialist has spoken to the GP and so on. And if I could try now, can you see that as a, as a chart? That is perfect. What a wonderful chart. <laughs> there you go. So it, it seems to me there are a number of things that have happened. Increased home monitoring. Uh, in, in, in psychiatry, there's been changes as well. And in public hospitals, the, say the use of uh, private hospitals is, is uh, coming along. So I think there's been a whole lot of changes to the uh, health system some of which are good. And so we're now having this, this debate in the health system uh, be, between, and in the, in the society and government generally, between the snapbackers who say, oh, let's just go back to the way the world was before the coronavirus. And those who are saying, there are some things that happened during this coronavirus period, during the pandemic, where, which were good and which we should actually learn from and implement in the post-coronavirus, post-pandemic period. And so there, up there, there are some changes that I think we should be thinking about. So we should be saying, this pandemic was terrible in many ways, but there is a silver lining if some of the things that we've been talking about for the last decade or so are able to be implemented in the, in the post-pandemic period. So that's why we call this period we're now in the transition to a new normal. We don't want to go back to the old order. Thanks, Stephen. Ladies and gentlemen, you're watching a special webinar on the COVID-19 crisis with me, Paul Austin, and a panel of Grattan Institute experts, Stephen Duckett, John Daly, Brendan Coates, and Marion Terrell. Marion, I want to bring you in here. You're the Transport and Cities Program Director at Grattan. What can you tell us about how our cities have changed and about how our individual movements around our cities have changed over the course of the shutdown? Uh, thanks, Paul, and hi, everyone. I think you only need to look out the window to see that there's just far less movement around the city. It's very obvious. To put some numbers around that, by mid-April, crowding in the CBD of Sydney, Melbourne and Brisbane was at a fifth of usual levels or less. Movements at railway stations outside the CBD was down to about 10% of normal. And when it comes to suburban shopping centres, um, what, what we were seeing around that time was 40% of normal in Sydney and Melbourne and about 50% in Brisbane. Now, just to explain what I mean by movements, I'm talking about using the signals from mobile devices, mobile phones that were captured in a sample of those locations that I've mentioned, anonymised to prevent identification of any individual person. And, and this is data that's been shared to me by Beachlister Consulting, and they've got an interesting dashboard on their website with further information for those who are interested to find out more. Mm -hmm. I guess just to go on a bit though, so, so Paul, I, I suppose that's what's happening now. I think what is less obvious is that even before we began stage one restrictions, crowding in CBDs was already well down. It was almost halved from normal levels before stage one restrictions we saw an equally remarkable drop on public transport. And by the time we got to stage three, which was um, where we were required to stay home except for essential trips, public transport had fallen even more to below a fifth of normal in Melbourne and Brisbane quarter in Sydney. And the other thing that's interesting is looking at international airports. Mm. So they, of course, have become a lot less crowded since there's been a ban on entry to Australia by non-residents. That was on the 20th of March but movements had already fallen by more than a third before the government even advised Australians to reconsider overseas travel, which was on the 18th of March. So I guess that what all this shows us, I think, is that the official restrictions do affect how we behave, but they're only part of the story. A lot of the change in behaviour happened well before they were introduced. 
And, and that, that's really a sign, I think, that people are displaying plenty of community goodwill and common sense. Um, they, they, people don't want to put themselves at risk and they don't want to put others at risk. So they, they, those, uh, that common sense has kept us at home before the government mandated it. And I think it will keep us there until people believe that it is safe to venture out. Okay, but as we're staying at home, the economic disruption has been enormous. And I want to ask Brendan Coates about that soon. But Marion, what does this crisis mean for the, the major projects that are being planned or built in our major capital cities? Yeah, so there's, some, there's a huge building program going on in our major capital cities. And there, there's these iconic uh, projects in Sydney. We've got the Metro West and Metro City here in Melbourne, we've got Northeast Link Suburban Rail Loop, Airport Rail in Brisbane, Cross River Rail. They're, they're really big projects, in some cases, record-breaking projects. And there seems to be no intention to change that. If anything, ministers are being asked to fast-track projects where possible to help an economic recovery. But the rationale for major new infrastructure projects is largely underpinned by population growth. And population growth has fallen right away. So in the first three and a half months of the year, over 300,000 temporary visa holders left Australia and we're not letting new people to come in to replace them. So, so this is a time where governments should pause. They should review the business case for all these major projects that are on the table. And that's because these projects were scoped up for different times with fast population growth and building for these peak periods, building for the peaks, um, particularly for, for road projects, back when we had peak hours. I think to the extent that governments think that it's a good idea to fast track infrastructure to create jobs, I'd also say pause. And just think about where the job losses are most acute. And they're in industries where, there's, uh, where it's difficult to have physical distancing and where it's difficult to work from home. And that's looking like retail, hospitality, personal care work, those kinds of things. I think um, in terms of what, uh, thinking about, oh, here's a problem, here's a solution, we should just think about perhaps more directly, obviously valuable ways to do this um, and to uh, then building infrastructure, which was designed for a different time and place. So I, I think those two things really, the future population growth and what else you could be doing with the money for people now are probably the key factors in why I think a big pause and rethink is warranted. Let me ask about a very particular project, however, Marion. The Federal Labor Party has revived the idea of a very fast train between Brisbane and Melbourne. That's a pretty alluring idea, isn't it, Marion? Yes, isn't it? Um, who doesn't love a fast train? So that's right. The Labor Party um, early this month called on the government to back a high-speed rail down the east coast of Australia on the grounds that it would create jobs and boost regional communities. So it's a plan that they took to the last election and they have supported it for a long time. And when in government, they did do a detailed feasibility study, which was published in 2013. But it's not just in this incarnation that the very fast train has got a long history. It basically comes up every, every 10 years or so uh, in one form or another, only to be battered down when people take a good look at it. Uh, so there was one in the 80s, backed by BHP and Elders IXL, which was abandoned in 91 when it became evident that it had failed to secure the tax concessions that it needed. Um, there was a 90s proposal from the Speed Rail Consortium, which won a tender in, um, in 98 for a fast train on the basis of no net cost to the taxpayer, but that got terminated because it was going to require excessive subsidies. And there's been more recently um, another proposal by the Clara Consortium proposing to build eight new inland cities. I think the thing about the very fast trains is that they really play to our dreams. Who doesn't love them? I love it so much that I'm publishing a report on this topic in about a month's time. Yeah. But I do think it is a very big ask that every taxpayer in Australia would stump up 10 grand to build this with the benefits going in this study of, that the ALP commissioned, the benefits primarily going to business travellers between Sydney, Melbourne and Brisbane. So it would splurge a generation's worth of public infrastructure investment on a single project where there are already good commercial air and coach links. Sorry to be a wet blanket. 
Okay, so a broader question for you, Marian. What lessons are emerging from this crisis for the way we should plan and manage our cities? We are a very long way from a stable end state. I think we don't know what to expect um, in terms of getting a vaccine or various vaccines for mutations or what that will look like. So in terms of what is more immediately in front of us, um, I'll just talk about the path out of lockdown, I guess, in the near term. I can see a few lessons about the way we plan and manage our cities. I think firstly, um, to the extent that we have prolonged distancing, it will change the way we travel a lot. It already has, of course, but um, it's not just how much we travel, but how we do it um, that's changing and likely to continue. People won't act unless they feel safe. And I think it's most acute for public transport. I think people uh, will only feel safe if they're confident that it won't be overly crowded. And we see overseas in Europe, for example, floor markings on the buses, maximum uh, limits on vehicles in China. Um, we're also going to want to see carriages sanitised and cleaned much more often. And um, again, we're seeing that happening in a lot of cities around the world, Hong Kong, for example, Washington, D.C. I think in terms of people's personal behaviour, I would expect um, probably a requirement to wear masks, maybe temperature checks on entry. We're seeing in Asian cities um, uh, places to wash your hands or sanitise your hands, perhaps changing the surfaces that people touch a lot so that they are uh, cleaner, but perhaps uh, not as many high touch surfaces like door handles and handrails. Naturally, this is all costly to implement and fair revenue will be well down because work carries many people. So I think that's what we can expect on public transport. I do think we've got to expect a lot more trips to be taken by car, a larger fraction of trips to be taken by car. I also note that in a lot of cities, bike travel is surging. We're seeing that in American cities like New York, also in China. People may also move more to small mobility devices. And I think um, longer term that might uh, cause, uh, um, give, give rise to calls for repurposing road space for vehicles that don't take up as much space and yet are not public transport. So that's a, a bit of a prediction about where this might go. So that's one lesson that's emerging. I think another lesson that I would that I see emerging is um, that we shouldn't underestimate the power of adaptation. So I think it is amazing to see creative responses from businesses. So what I've personally observed in the last week are people changing how they provide their product. So lots of um, for example, local restaurants are doing delivery. Very simple example, but it's widespread. They're changing where they do it. Uh, sorry, when they do it. So you, uh, um, I've noticed um, hairdressers, for example, open for much longer hours, but having fewer people working at the same time, but same rent. Um, so that's an interesting change. I think we're also seeing changes in what the product even is. Um, uh, so I've just seen a cafe turn itself into a vegetable shop, for example. Basically, this adaptability is a very powerful force, and I think it is definitely one of the lessons that's emerging, that, that there, it is a powerful force and something for us to work with. I guess my final comment, though, would be that at a time of high uncertainty, it is better to keep options open than close them off. Some decisions do limit future options, but the world can change a lot, as we've just seen. And people are surprisingly adaptable. That's a great asset. That's perhaps our greatest asset. Thank you, Marion. Brendan Coates, I want to bring you in here. Brendan's a distinguished economist and he runs our household finances program here at Grattan. Brendan, I've got a big question for you, which comes in part from Graham and from Janice. Um, is it still all bad news on the global and domestic economy, Brendan? Thanks, Paul. I think there is some good news. So on the domestic economy, I think the really good news is that we've crushed the epidemic curve much quicker than perhaps we would have expected four, six, seven weeks ago. Um, so rates of infection never accelerated quite the way they did elsewhere. And now we, you know, we, we don't know how much of that is good management. And clearly that's a big part of it. And some of it may be good luck, maybe seasonality. Um, 
And so we've avoided a lot of the heartbreak that we've seen across the US and Europe. And it means we've come out the other side, I suspect, faster than a lot of people expected. So the conversation has shifted uh, quicker um, to what we open up as a result of the infection rates coming down so quickly. Um, I think the other good news is if you had have asked me six weeks ago, I would have expected that right now we'd probably be seeing some kind of financial crisis playing out much more than we have to date. Um, in a sense, the global financial crisis has provided a really good dress rehearsal for what we've done during COVID-19. So we've gone to a world where we've basically shored up the banking system, the Reserve Bank, the central bank, the central banks in Australia and abroad are uh, intervening a lot in financial markets, in corporate bond markets. You know, we've gone, in Australia, we've gone to QE after being reticent to do it for so long, we, we enacted it within weeks. And so at least for now, um, that broader financial market instability hasn't taken place. And I was certainly worried that we would face a triple crisis of a health crisis, a real econ economy crisis, and then a financial crisis. And I think the third one could have been very catastrophic. Um, I think that's the good news. I suppose the bad news is that, you know, we, we probably two things. One is, you know, we can't have a sustained economic recovery until we've solved the public health crisis. Uh, we've seen that we've been able to tame uh, the virus by doing fairly severe lockdowns. Um, and that has taken place across much of the world. Uh, what we don't yet know is how much we can open up before things, um, before the rate of infection goes back above one. And then we're in a world where, you know, you've got to stop opening up. So we haven't seen countries yet walk the tightrope between uh, retaining a relatively open economy and having low rates of infection uh, for a sustained period. So some, such as Sweden or Taiwan, seem to be doing a pretty good job of it. Uh, they're obviously adopting different strategies there. Um, Singapore looked like it was initially succeeding and then failed uh, in part because of their, their migrant work population. And it does show that, you know, you're only as strong as your weakest link. Um, and then I think even countries that are emerging from COVID-19 like China, which is to a large degree kind of left lockdown and gone back to normal, the economy still seems to be functioning at about 10 to 15% below where it was pre-COVID um, on measures like coal consumption, electricity. Um, and, you know, that's reassuring. It means we've got most of the way back. But, you know, if you're 10 to 15% below where you were, um, that's still the definition of a depression. Um, and so, as Marion said, we will adapt going forward and hopefully that will mean uh, we get back to something closer to normal. But it does still, the, the jury's still out as to whether we'll get all the way back to a normal level of economic activity globally over the course of the next three to six months. And what's really striking here is Australia is probably more exposed than other countries to, um, to affects uh, what's happening globally because you know, we're a small economy that relies, you know, that has big export markets. And in a world where um, other countries don't quite go back to normal, then that's going to really weigh on the economy, you know, for quite some time. You've been looking closely, Brendan, at unemployment. What's happening to the labour market? So we've actually had more data come in um, than I think we would have expected a few weeks ago. And I think that the, a lot of credit has to go to the ABS. Uh, for generating new products, for adapting uh, quicker than perhaps we may have initially anticipated. So what we've seen in, in the actual data that's come in from the single touch payroll system that, that firms use to, um, to interact with the tax office with respect to BAS statements and tax returns is that um, we've seen somewhere like 800,000 Australians um, be, become out of work as of, at least temporarily, as of the 4th of April. So in the three weeks between the 21st of March and the 4th of April, we lost essentially, you know, 6% of the workforce. Now, in putting in context, that's context that's much larger than anything we've seen before, where you know the hit to the labour to, to employment has never been more than one percent in a particular month. Um, now, even though that um, measure is uh, taking place with a lag, because a lot of the people who are showing up in uh, in that data are still being paid. Uh, even though they may have lost their jobs because the payroll operates with a lag. And so the numbers are probably larger. And I think what the data is also showing is that there are obviously very large impacts on the first round, uh, first round impacts on those sectors that rely upon close physical proximity or, or congregations of people in order to function, like accommodation and food services, arts and recreation, the kind of sectors you'd expect. But the, the hit is also fairly broad-based. You know, So we've, we've seen 8% of jobs in mining disappear. 
Uh, we've seen 8% in you know, real estate services, in professional technical services. So those second round impacts where it's not just firms that are having to shut their doors because they can't abide by social distancing, uh, it's also um, a response to the concern that firms and households are going to pull back their spending. You know, and see, you say, for example, architects, you see a big downturn because that's the first thing you do if you hit halt on some projects. So uh, other ABS data suggests that maybe one in six workers may have lost their job over that period um, using household surveys. And those kind of numbers accord with, um, you know, the work that Grattan's done. We did a, a working paper recently called Shutdown Estimating the Employment Shock from COVID. And we were estimating in that that somewhere between 14 and 26% of Australians would lose, potentially lose their jobs temporarily, uh, and resulting in an unemployment rate of between 10 and 15%. I'd say the data to date probably points towards the lower end of that range. Um, obviously, things are moving really quickly. Uh, but the hit is certainly being concentrated amongst younger workers and lower income workers. So if you're a low income worker, you are essentially twice as likely on our numbers to uh, have your livelihood affected is if you're a high income worker because you tend to opt work in those kind of sectors of the economy where um, it requires close physical proximity to others, whereas older workers and higher income workers have tended to work in sectors where you can work more remotely. Brendan, there's been some big reform ideas emerged during this crisis. I've noticed, for example, calls for stamp duty to be axed in favour of a more comprehensive land tax. Is that a good idea? And what other policy reforms have bubbled to the surface or at least should bubble to the surface? Well, that is a good idea. Although I should say this, um, at the start that, um, you know, as fast as the pandemic is spread globally, the hot takes about what should happen afterwards have spread even quicker. <laughs> and so we have seen, you know, an enormous amount of confirmation bias. If you read the economic commentators in Australia, we've seen simultaneously um, an expectation that the, the state will expand in size from some at the same time as, you know, the state is going to contract and a new wave of entrepreneurship is going to carry us forward. Um, and I think we do need to be careful in a world where so much is still uncertain, as Marion said, uh, about getting too far ahead of ourselves. Uh, that said, I'd also say that Australia's probably a little bit unique in we have avoided the worst of the public health crisis. So the effect of, the, of, of this on our community has been less than perhaps we anticipated. And I wonder whether that will actually have an effect upon the politics, because the conversations have not changed as much as I certainly expected they would, because that hasn't flowed through. So perhaps you could argue that the Overton window about what's possible is maybe a bit smaller than it would have been if we'd, we'd experienced what Italy and New York had. Um, there's clearly two big challenges that the government's going to have, or governments in Australia are going to have to solve. The first one is how to grow the economy, because obviously, in a world where we adapt, that uh, where things don't quite go back to normal for quite a long time until you, you do see something like a vaccine, then there's going to be a bunch of technologies in the economy and a bunch of capital in the economy that is now less valuable. Um, so, for example, our investments in retail space in shopping centres probably don't generate the same return that they did previously. Some technologies probably don't generate the same return. And so in time, we're going to have to see a flow of resources uh, to those sectors of the economy that are going to grow as a result of this. And that is where something like stamp duty land tax reform will help. It'll help with uh, businesses being able to restructure because stamp duty obviously applies on um, commercial um, business transactions. Um, and it will mean it make it easier for people to adjust either their living circumstances based on where they live or to move to new jobs to respond to a kind of post-COVID economy. So we know stamp duty is very expensive. And it also has the effect of narrowing who ends up paying for public services. So one of the consequences of stamp duty over the last few years has been uh, we've relied very heavily on a narrow range of taxpayers to, to pay very large stamp duties at the point when they purchase homes uh, to fund the health and education services at a state level that the rest of us enjoy. And if the second objective or principle that's going to come out of this is that we're going to have to pay some of the debt back over time, that's probably going to occur over a very long period of time decades rather than years, we're going to need to share that burden broadly. And moving to a land tax allows us to do that. It essentially shifts that burden or spreads it across the entire community to landowners, some of whom, you know, certainly some of, of have been hurt by, by COVID-19 and offered rental discounts. But on the whole, probably have been less hit than, uh, you know, those that are working and that therefore um, that have um, lost their livelihoods. And we're going to see that burden be shifted broadly. I think what's not yet clear is 
there's not going to be a lot of money to pay for economic reform, particularly at the Commonwealth level. Uh, so if your if your uh, economic pet project is not included in the stimulus or the support measures the government puts in place, the likelihood of it getting funded on the other side of this goes down because there will be less money floating around in a post-COVID world, either because the economy hasn't fully recovered and because the budget position will look worse than it did previously. Thanks, Brendan. John Daly, I want to bring you in here. John's the CEO of Grattan. I have a big question for you, John. Are we now on the road out of this crisis? Well, I think you'd certainly rather be where we are today than where we were four or five weeks ago. Uh, and as a number have said already, um, in some ways, this has gone better than most people expected. Um, infection rates and infections have fallen faster in Australia than we probably had any right to expect. Um, and that's good news. And of course, one of the implications of this, and it's a, it's a question that comes up from Mark Duffett, um, is, you know, do we get to eliminate the virus? And the answer is, look, if you keep the current restrictions in place, the answer to that question must be yes, eventually. Now, we don't know exactly how long you've got to keep them in place, but it's, it's a matter of kind of pure mathematical logic that if you keep your borders highly controlled and sealed, um, if you have an infection rate of less than one, then sooner or later, you get your infections to zero. Uh, and of course, something like the Northern Territory has had no new infections for um, over three weeks now. Uh, and of course, every day that goes by without a new infection, the more confident you are that there are in fact no people infected uh, in the Northern Territory, um, uh, certainly other than the cases that are already we know about. Um, and that goes to a question that, um, uh, Sonia um, Georgiatis asked about, you know, well, what about unknown infections? Um, and of course, this is a big worry, and it's one of the reasons why people are concerned that, that we will get a so-called second wave. Um, but one of the features of a society in which you have no infections and you can't see any infections is that the longer that goes on, the more confident you are that not only do you have no, no unknown infections, you sort of also have no unknown unknowns. Uh, and the reason for that is if, if somebody um, is relatively little affected so that they're, in, that they're infected, but they're not showing any symptoms, they infect someone else, they infect someone else, that can happen. But it's very unlikely that you'll get that kind of chain, you know, one person after another with none of them showing any symptoms. We are now living in a world in which basically anybody who's got a cough and who actually goes to the is probably going to go to the doctor. I mean, it's, you'd have to be living under a pretty large rock not to realise that COVID-19 was around. If you go to the doctor and you present with symptoms that look remotely like um, COVID, uh, chances are you will get tested. And therefore, if there are unknown infections in the community, sooner or later they will emerge. And if you live in a world in which you haven't seen any infections at all, as say the Northern Territory has for three or three weeks or so, you start to get increasingly confident that there aren't any there. What that means is that, of course, you can afford to bring back economic and social activity, which would have an infection rate of more than one. But because you haven't got any infections, that doesn't matter. Uh, and of course, that's the huge advantage of getting to eliminate, as opposed to merely not very many. Now, clearly, Australia is already in a world of not very many. Um, but there is a big value in that extra bit of getting to zero and being pretty confident about it. And as Marion said, public confidence is key here because it's not just that people don't do things because government tells them that they're not allowed to do them. It's clearly also true that people don't do them either because they're afraid of catching the disease or because they think it's the right thing not to do them, irrespective of what government says. Um, so there is a big value of getting to zero. Um, and of course, what that implies is um, if you do bring back um, economic and social activity, you wanna do it slowly to make sure that you're at zero and you will wanna do it differently in different places. It makes total sense for school students to be going back to um, school in the Northern Territory today in a world where they have seen no infections at all for three weeks. Um, it makes less sense in New South Wales, where you're continuing to see three or four new infections per day, um, and where we're not just worried about the in, um, uh, health effects on school students and potentially their parents, we are also worried about the fact that schools bring lots of people together 
And if there are infections out there that we know, don't know about, they can be a place in which lots of infections basically get transmitted, and then we do have to go back into lockdown. So, um, and that goes to another question um, which Ronnie would ask, which is, um, you know, what's our backup to this sort of tra trace and track and the app and so on? And, and look, the, one of the answers to that is the, if you like, manual trace and track that we have had in place and that's been in operating, I suspect, with increasing effectiveness as we frankly practice um, in a number of states. Um, that's the backup. It's a backup that works well when you've got very few infections. The backup that works less well when you've got a lot more infections. So I think we have definitely turned the corner. We've certainly seen far fewer infections. We have some states which have been at zero for a couple of days. A territory in the Northern Territory has been at zero for three weeks. As I said, that's a lot better than probably most people expected five weeks ago. Um, and then the question is, what do we do from here? Exactly. So we've turned a corner, John, but that is the question. In what order should things reopen from here? So the short answer is you want to be thinking about it on two dimensions. You want to be thinking, um, if we restart this social or economic activity, how much does that change the infection rate? Does that increase the infection rate a lot so that if there are infections we don't know about, it could potentially really start it up again, the epidemic up again quickly? And of course, from the other point of view, um, what is the economic and social value? Because I think we shouldn't forget that, you know, the purpose of this exercise is not to maximise the value of the economy. That's not the purpose of living. The purpose of living is to maximise, you know, our well-being and social interactions is a very big part of that well-being. So in, in anything that we open up, we're trying to do things that um, uh, have quite a, have a small impact on the infection rates, but have a pretty big impact on our social and economic welfare. Um, so if you are going to bring back your schools, then doing it the way that New South Wales is doing it so that you only bring back a fifth of the students each day so that they are only infecting the same fifth, potentially, classroom um, each day. Inherently, it also means the classroom can be further apart, so the infection rate will spread less quickly. Um, you know, all of that makes sense. Uh, and of course, as Danielle Wood pointed out in an article for um, that she wrote um, earlier this week, um, it's on the Grattan website, um, the, the um, educational, social, economic benefit of bringing schools back is very, very large. The health impact is, I think, you know, something where, as Stephen pointed out, reasonable minds differ. Uh, and that's why it's a very difficult question. So I think the short answer is slowly. Um, you bring back the activities which have the least impact on infection rates. What that unfortunately means is that um, activities that bring a lot of people together, where they're going to mix a lot with everybody else in the room in ways that are hard to track and predict, are the activities that come back last. So what that means is um, live sport, live entertainment, large weddings with 300 people there are the last things that you bring back, and you would only bring them back at a point that you were really confident that there were no infections in Australia, or you know you had a cure for this virus, or you had a, um, uh, a, a, um, a, a um, some kind of way of making people immune. Uh, um, uh, so yeah, and and you know it doesn't look likely that those things are going to happen in the near future. But getting to zero is a distinct possibility. Thanks, John. Now I'm going to run around the panel as best I can with a range of questions from you, our audience. There's lots of them, so let's see how we go. I'm going to start with you, Stephen. This is from Will, and it relates to face masks. Would Australia be a safer place if everyone wore face masks in public? So that assumes there's no trade-off, uh, Will, uh, for, the, for the face mask decision. There has been a shortage of personal protective equipment for health workers right from the start of this uh, pandemic. And my own view is I prefer to ration the face masks, for example, for people on the streets to make sure that every health professional has the required equipment for them to do their jobs. The evidence, I think, is, is relatively clear that face masks help. But uh, as I said, there's a trade-off. If we don't have enough for everybody, I'd prefer to use it for those who are treating me. Another one for you, Stephen. This is from Petter. In fact, it's from several of our uh, viewers, but this particular question is from Petter. What are the prospects of a vaccine, please? 
um, well, I've got a dice set of dice here so that I can roll them and give you some answers. But uh, I'm of the view that, first of all, it is not at all clear that a vaccine will be able to be developed at all. That is, it is a very complex science to develop a vaccine for this, for a coronavirus. Um, and so we shouldn't assume there will be one. If someone is successful and it works in a small group of people and it works in a large group of people, it'll take a long time to scale it up to industrial size so the whole population could be vaccinated. So I don't think we should assume it's going to be in the next 12 months. Okay, so that goes to a question, a follow-up question really from Marco. What are the ramifications if indeed no vaccine is discovered? So John has talked about that. Uh, so uh, let's assume we eliminate uh, coronavirus in Australia. Uh, there's still obviously going to be some chance that it will flop in somehow, but the main protection is going to be border control. We're going to have to actually maintain hard border control. Everybody who comes in has a fortnight in quarantine, so we do not uh, start the whole thing all over again. Stephen, I think you'll like this one. This is from Julie. Will private hospitals play a different role once all this is over? So certainly in the short term, Julie, I think it is important that we use the, the, the capacity of private hospitals. There's now a huge backlog, a, a bigger backlog of elective surgery, elective procedures for the public sector. And I think we should be saying to the private sector, you can help and we'll pay you, but we'll pay you a reasonable price to use the private sector to clear some of the public sector backlog, in addition to what it's always been doing uh, with insured patients. Marion Terrell, a question for you from Greg. Should we set off on a bigger infrastructure boom to help the economy recover? A lot of people are suggesting that uh, construction is the way to create jobs and help us to recover. I guess um, what that evokes for me is the 1930s depression, men trudging along in lines with shovels on their shoulders. I think we just need to pause here and think about what is the nature of the downturn that we're seeing and not win the last war. What we've got is a, the recession here is it's a partial lockdown um, so that businesses can't operate. It's not that people are unwilling to buy their stuff, it's that they can't sell it as readily as they could before. We've closed the borders and we've got social distancing. We've also got an old fashioned lack of demand or lack of animal spirits type of recession, but this supply side constraint is really important. So I, I think it's just, um, reaching for an old solution in a very different kind of situation is not helpful. I think it, uh, when I look at the kind of people who are losing their jobs or losing hours of work, it is, as, as Brennan was saying, it's people who have to work in physical proximity to other people and it's people who can't do their work from home and that, um, that it may come to construction sector at some point but here and now that is not the sector that is most affected. Another one for you Marianne from Nathan if more people work from home in future how will that change our cities? It's really interesting so um, Clearly, uh, some significant minority of the population is able to work from home and are doing it um, with a surprisingly good degree of adaptation, if personal ex uh, experience is any guide. I think what we had already seen um, between the 2011 and 2016 census um, was um, a bit of a trend to more working from home, particularly if you look at the same people in both times, uh, there's quite an uptick in pe more people working from home off a very low base, I'd say. So it's still very much single digits. But um, I think often when people are forced to change, they find that they can change in a way that perhaps they've been reluctant or unable um, or constrained from doing before. And I think working from home is a big one. So um, I do think this is a trend to watch. And if I had to predict, I would, I would speculate that we would probably see a fair bit more of it. I think you'll like this one, Marianne. This is from Kate. Will this crisis cause people to reject dense, high-rise inner-city living and go back to spacious suburbia? Uh, it's a great question. And there's, there's been a, um, quite a bit of speculation about this 
Um, and I think more generally about decentralisation, whether this should give a boost to people moving out to country towns to, and working from home. Um, I think the issue is not density per se, it's crowding. So um, I think we will certainly see um, some uh, reluctance to, to for people to uh, join in activities and go to places that are very crowded. But that, that is a very different thing from density um, where people can live in reasonably close proximity but not in a crowded environment. So I don't think so. Um, and I think, but it does depend on how long this goes on for. I, um, I think, uh, yeah, we, the, the turnover of, of um, residential and sort of the development of residential units does take a lot of time and um, it, it'll depend how we feel, but for my money, I would think um, crowding is going to be just much more acute an issue than density. Uh, one for you, Brendan Coates, uh, which goes very much to our household finances. It's from Lucy. She asks, should childcare remain free after this crisis? Well, Paul, childcare should certainly remain cheaper. So um, it's pretty clear that of all the, the things you could do to boost workforce participation, uh, reducing the costs of childcare, particularly for low and middle income workers, would make a big difference. We know that uh, secondary workers or secondary income earners, which tend to be women who are tending to work part-time and share care with um, balanced uh, caring responsibilities in the household, tend to have the most elastic labour supply. So if you're trying to boost workforce participation, then reducing those effective marginal tax rates that are currently very high would be a good way to go. I think the challenge with universal childcare is probably one of cost. Uh, it is very expensive uh, to maintain the current system. And at the margin, it might not make the most sense uh, to continue to have childcare be free uh, for those who are, say, only three, two, $300,000 a year um, when that money could instead be used elsewhere to support other economic reforms that might give you a bigger bang for your buck. But certainly we should be making sure that childcare remains a lot cheaper uh, for low and middle income earners going forward. Brendan, I think you'll like this one. This is from Trent. What's happened with the super funds? Will we look at superannuation differently once all this is over? Well, it is, it is fascinating that the superannuation debate has probably been the one thing that hasn't been suspended by the pandemic. Yeah. Um, and obviously that's partly been triggered um, by um, the early release scheme. Um, the early release scheme we think is a good idea and we've said so many times before because it uh, certainly the government supports that are in place, you know, there's always going to be people that are fall through the cracks. Uh, you can't perfectly design those supports that help everyone and super is there as a backstop. Uh, the probably the, the, the issue that's been raised recently um, in the data is that we're seeing a lot of lower income people who will get JobKeeper or JobSeeker payments that will largely replace their income be hit, uh, will pick up, um, claim their super and it's a question of timing. Because JobKeeper doesn't apply until May um, and the JobSeeker payments only start flowing from the 27th of April for those who have finished their two-week period um, of income assessment prior to that, um, you know, we're seeing people who have lost their jobs in, in mid-March who aren't going to get paid anything uh, from the government until May. And so that's why the super scheme has been so, um, has been so attractive. More broadly, though, Paul, um, you know, I think this has probably taken a little bit of loss off the industry super funds who have been seen since the Royal Commission as being the high performing funds. They've been some partly due to no fault of their own, but they've been the nexus of um, in those sectors like hospitality that have seen more people applying. But also they probably do look like they've had some more liquidity issues. They haven't probably had as much in cash as some of the other funds. And that's now hurting them as they're having to liquidate assets in order to meet those early redemptions. John Daly, can I put this one to you? This is a big one. Several of our viewers have raised this in written questions in the lead up to this webinar. Relates to the famous Financial Times editorial of a few weeks back now, John. It was an astonishing editorial and it's worth me reading perhaps the key paragraph. So this is the Financial Times of London, no less. They wrote, radical reforms reversing the prevailing policy direction of the past four decades will need to be on the table. Governments will have to accept a more active role in the economy. 
they must see public services as investments rather than liabilities and look for ways to make labour markets less insecure. Redistribution will again be on the agenda. The privileges of the elderly and wealthy in question. Policies until recently considered eccentric, such as basic income and wealth taxes, will have to be in the mix. John Daly, has the world really changed that much? Yeah, it does seem like an editorial from The Guardian rather than from The Financial Times, doesn't it? Um, look, the short answer is that the world is going to be divided, history is going to be divided into pre and post COVID. Um, historically, um, big epidemic, big pandemics, you know, the Black Tet, um, Spanish flu, although of course that, that coincided with the um, end of World War One. Um, these have been big historic turning points. And I think it's going to be very hard to ignore a couple of facts. One is that um, those governments that intervened early have wound up in societies that certainly for the moment look a lot better. Um, secondly, it's very hard to avoid the fact that essentially those who are most precarious um, in terms of their employment, those who are in casual employment and the young have done much, much worse over the medium run than those who are older uh, and those who are in more permanent employment. Uh, and so to say that the answer to this financial crisis is to essentially make um, employment even less secure doesn't strike me as something that politically is going to be very easy to pull off. Um, on the other hand, I think suggestions that there may be someone's going to have to pay for all of the money that we have spent and the money that we will spend in terms of responding to not so much COVID, but merely a globally synchronised, really deep recession. Uh, you know, that's, that's the best case from here. Um, uh, someone's going to have to pay for that. And um, I think it will be difficult to resist the argument that that should include those over the age of 65 who, at least in Australia, have largely dropped out of the tax system over the last 15, 20 years as a result of a series of policy decisions. I think we are living in a different world. As Brendan says, ultimately, this has all affected Australia less than many other places, but it's still been a very big impact. And I think it's going to be very hard to avoid looking around the rest of the world and seeing you know, what has happened uh, and not expect some changes. Now, we're getting close to time, but I want to finish by asking you again, John Daly, what's on the agenda for the Grattan Institute over the coming weeks and months with regard to the COVID-19 crisis? Well, we'll obviously continue to respond to issues as they as they arise. We'll continue to respond to data as it comes through to, to try and explain what it means and what its implications are. But we're also starting to really turn our minds to um, uh, how do we unwind all of this? Um, uh, hopefully things will go reasonably well by September, October, and particularly October when both Commonwealth and state governments are bringing down budgets. We'll be in an Australia, at least, uh, with zero to very, very few COVID-19 cases. We'll almost certainly still have very tight control over the passenger borders. But what do we do from there? As I said, best case, all that we're trying to do is deal with a globally synchronised, really deep recession. Uh, but at the very least, we will have to work out how do we unwind the shifts in JobKeeper? How do we unwind the Job Seeker program, given that there's going to be a lot of people still without jobs? How do we um, uh, change um, the childcare arrangements that have been put in place? Um, what do we do about our health system and in particular the telehealth arrangements that have been put in place, inverted commas, temporarily, but it's very hard to see us going back to where we were three months ago in a world in which you could just never get any payment for um, a telehealth consultation. Um, uh, in terms of responding to that um, recession, how do we make sure that we... Um, uh, do stimulate the economy where that's appropriate. Does that mean social housing projects? Does it mean transport projects? If so, which transport projects? All of those kind of questions. Um, uh, disadvantaged students will do much worse out of the break in schooling. How do we help them? So we're going to be looking at all of those kinds of problems. Um, the responding to unwinding everything that's happened over the last three months and adapting to the new reality, which is not going to be what we have had three months ago, but hopefully will be better than where we are right at the moment. Um, that's a, a difficult set of issues. 
And then further down the track, we are planning to think about, you know, what are some of the really big reforms that we do need to put in place to cope with the ongoing reality? What tax reforms do we need? And so on. But although a lot of people started to jump to those very quickly, I think the scale of things that have to be done essentially in response to COVID and to the things we have put in place over the last couple of months are so large. I don't think that we're going to have a lot of bandwidth either at Grattan or in governments to deal with those problems in October. Those really long-term problems are probably going to be mostly further off. So that's what we're doing at Grattan uh, in terms of responding to those short-term issues, short-er term, i.e. over the next six to 12 months. We think they're an incredibly important um, set of issues. I think this crisis has shown just how important good decisions by government are. Uh, and Australia has, by and large, made pretty good decisions, maybe a little later than would have been ideal, but usually just in time. Uh, and so we're going to be trying to do that. Obviously, that costs money, and anyone who can support us that's enormously appreciated, although we understand this is not a time in which there's a lot of spare money floating around. But um, we are really committed to trying to make um, uh, those pieces of work happen and try to improve um, public policy for Australians. Thank you, John, and thank you to you, Stephen, Marion and Brendan, and thank you to you, our audience. We've been overwhelmed with the response to these webinars. In fact, we've had to purchase a bigger Zoom licence. If you've uh, found today's webinar valuable, you can let your friends and colleagues know that they'll be able to watch it from later this afternoon on our website and on our social media channels. Please keep in touch with Grattan via our website. Wash your hands, keep your distance, and thanks for watching. Grattan Institute is uniquely positioned to bring an independent, rigorous and practical lens to big issues in public policy, with the capacity to talk honestly to both sides of politics. We maintain this unique position through the generosity of the public and our affiliate companies. If you would like to find out more about contributing to our continued independence, head to our website to donate.